Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by neurotologist, notologist, Dr. Colin Driscoll, and we'll be discussing pediatric cochlear implantation. Dr. Driscoll, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jason. Uh, to start, I just want to say we're going to focus more on the prelingual severe to profound uh, hearing loss, and we also have a good episode on pediatric sensory neural hearing loss, which will be a good adjunct to this episode. But Dr. Driscoll, to start, um, when we talk about presentation and kids presenting uh, for evaluation of cochlear implantation, how do they typically present to your clinic? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways to look at that. So clearly there's newborn hearing screening programs that are quite well established and extensive throughout the United States. And so a lot of children are picked up um, on the newborn screening, get their initial autoacoustic emissions and then ABR testing done elsewhere, and they show up in our clinic already diagnosed with a probable advanced uh, hearing loss. And then there's a second group of uh, children with either acquired or progressive hearing loss uh, that sometimes, again, will get picked up on screening going into kindergarten and that sort of thing, or just out of concern of language development, the parents will recognize there's uh, something not quite right with the hearing. And when you see these patients, uh, more specifically the, the prelingual kids presenting with hearing loss, what questions do you usually ask parents at the initial visit? Yeah, so uh, you want to sort out, is there something we can identify that maybe caused the hearing loss or led to the hearing loss? So is there a family history of hearing loss? Is there anything unusual about uh, pregnancy, uh, bad infections, high fevers? How about the uh, birth? Was it you know a routine or was the maybe uh, in the hospital for several days, uh, uh, treated for jaundice or high bilirubinemia, um, other um, maternal stresses or infections. And then, uh, you know, family hearing loss, uh, of course, and siblings, et cetera, parents, um, other, other disorders that seem to run in the family. Uh, those are sort of the, you know, the early childhood things. And then if you're seeing a child maybe at 18 months or two years, is there any hospitalizations for this child, meningitis, I suppose trauma, that sort of thing. And how much do you dive into other disabilities or even cognitive issues when you're seeing these kids? Yeah, so I think developmental um, uh, status and progression are really important uh, to understand. And of course, at a, a very young age, it's a little bit harder to sort out, and I certainly rely on the pediatricians and geneticists, to, speech-language pathologists, to, to figure out, uh, you know, how is this, is this child progressing um, according to plan and normal milestones, or are there some delays? And when you're evaluating these children on physical exam, I know you end up relying a lot on the hearing tests, but what are you looking for on actual physical exam when you evaluate these kids in clinic? So the majority of children we see have a completely normal exam uh, from a head and neck and otologic standpoint. But you want to look for uh, any syndromic features, overall appearance, cleft palate, uh, preauricular pits or cysts, malformations of the external ear, narrow external auditory canal. Um, you know, white forelock, <laughs> things like that that uh, might tip you off to a, a syndrome. 
And when we're speaking in the context of cochlear implantation, we're talking about evaluating kids that would potentially be candidates for implantation. Are there any red flags that you might notice in the office when you're evaluating these kids or talking to parents that you might keep in the back of your mind when you're considering cochlear implantation candidacy? Well, I think we'll talk a lot about uh, candidacy, and there are very few Well, there's only two things that I really require for putting in a cochlear implant. There has to be a cochlea and there has to be a cochlear nerve that'll carry a signal. And everything else is not so much a red flag, but maybe impacts the timing of implantation, your long-term expectations, your counseling, you know, setting up of resources to achieve success. So there's many things that influence uh, the decision. And, and how it may be executed, but they don't actually drive that fundamental decision. And then how much do you dive into a history of recurrent infections, PE tube placement, perforation, those kinds of things in preparation for CI evaluation? I think this still remains quite controversial. Children get ear infections. They get a lot of ear infections. They have fluid in their ears. You can't just wait until they outgrow all of that. I frankly basically separate these two things in my mind now. If a child qualifies for a cochlear implant, we're all set to go for go ahead for a cochlear implant. Um, we proceed with the cochlear implant. If they do have infections, ongoing fluid, we may place tubes ahead of time. But I only place the tubes if I think they need tubes independent of the implant. So another way to think about it, if a child meets criteria for PE tubes or an adenoidectomy or a tonsillectomy, we do that. I don't alter the treatment based on the plan for a cochlear implant. I think, you know, many kids get ear infections after we put an implant in. The odds of them developing a problem seems to be extremely low. And so, therefore, I don't alter the, the treatment ahead of implantation. There's a couple caveats to that. Clearly, if they have an infection at the time you're placing the implant, I may do the mastoidectomy and facial recess and put it in ear tube and come back later and actually place the device. I personally don't really want to have an ear tube in and an open eardrum if they don't really have a high risk of you know, frequent ear infections. And next, moving on to pathophysiology, uh, we cover this in depth uh, in our sensory neural hearing loss episode, but just to briefly review, what are the main causes of hearing loss in newborns? Yeah, there's a wide range to that. So it, we clearly think there's a genetic basis to uh, a significant percentage. I will say the genomics world is absolutely exploding in our ability to sequence people and understand the genome and understand how certain variants might lead to hearing loss. And I, I think anything that people are saying today will be uh, greatly enhanced in next year, five years from now, uh, as this world continues to explode. So I think we'll understand more and more of the prelingual uh, reasons for deafness. And that's probably also true for uh, some of the other acquired, you know, more common things are likely related to infections Meningitis is well-known risk factor for severe uh, to profound sensory hearing loss. Fortunately, it's a lot less common than it used to be because of vaccination rates, at least you know throughout most of the United States. Um, but we, you know, we talked a bit about um, 
just prematurity and hyperbilirubinemia and um, some of those childhood things that are associated with sensory now hearing loss. And we'll talk about this a bit more in workup, but how much do you pay attention to history of meningitis or even trauma when you're considering the workup and the etiology of this hearing loss, knowing that cochlear implantation might be coming soon? Yeah, meningitis can lead to progressive ossification or fibrosis within the inner ear. And fortunately, that's not super common, but you have to watch for it. And it definitely leads us to earlier implantation so that we can increase the chances of actually getting an electrode fully inserted. Do you have a mental timeline in your mind of how long you would wait following the diagnosis of meningitis? I don't have a strict timeline, but I look at the imaging, and there's a lot of enhancement in the cochlea. Or We're getting CT scans and MRI scans in these children, and if you start to see some loss of T2 signal, certainly any ossification on the uh, CT scan. If if you're comfortable that you know the the level of hearing and there's no other reason to delay implantation, then you know within a couple months you ought to for sure be able to sort out the hearing level and whether or not they're going to recover at all from the um, meningitis and then proceed with implantation. You have to modify that. You know, if you have a very very young child, I'm not sure. You know, I think you have to watch the imaging and, and try to use your best judgment about waiting long enough, but not too long. And now we've talked about you know our um, presentation, a little bit about the pathophysiology, and now I wanted to move on to workup, which I think is one of the, the big points um, in this topic. Uh, when we consider workup for uh, prelingual children who are considering cochlear implantation, what's required in the workup? Um, and we can start with hearing tests. What, what's required uh, before implantation? Um, so ABR is kind of the workhorse. And initially, there's going to be autoacoustic emissions and automated ABR is done. And then you're going to want some good, high-quality, usually sedated ABR. I like to see more than one. Uh, I'd like to see consistency in audiometric testing. And then there's children by age six months developing uh, otherwise cognitively normally should be able to participate in some behavioral testing, which is further confirmation of the uh, degree of hearing loss. So I think that those are kind of the fundamental, that's the fundamental audiometric testing. And are there any other tests that uh, you feel like are required in the CI candidacy, more specifically EKG, ophthalmologic exam, genetic exam, those kinds of things that look at other systems or more syndromic background? Yeah, so I'm a pretty big fan of a, a good, broad, standardized approach. And I think having a geneticist with an interest in hearing loss is the best you know, part of it is the best part of your um, uh, work up there to look for any of the syndromes and also do a, a good head to toe exam uh, on a child. So I think the geneticist plays a, a very central role in this. As I mentioned earlier, this is um, rapidly evolving with the, the genetic panels. Unfortunately, you don't have genomics experts everywhere, and so this can get uh, missed. And if you don't have a genomics a geneticist available, then having a genetics counselor, sending out lab tests, 
uh, working with a, a pediatrician are all really important. Um, ophthalmology is uh, sort of a required appointment. And if you have a hearing deficit, you don't want to miss out on identifying a visual deficit um, at the same time. And then there are other peripheral tests. Uh, the EKG is still commonly done because prolonged QT syndrome occurs. It's rare, um, but it's an inexpensive, easy test to do, and so it tends to get done routinely even without genetic testing, whereas most of the other laboratory work now is more based on uh, a thoughtful approach of what's likely wrong. And what imaging studies do you obtain in these kids? So I feel like I can get all the information I need in the vast majority of cases from an MRI scan. Uh, we have parasagittal images through the internal auditory canal, which will show the auditory nerve. If it's very atritic, you may not be able to see it well, uh, but that's the best way to look at the nerve for me. It shows the inner ear structure quite clearly, and so you can identify any malformations, um, such as a Mondini and large vestibular aqueduct or others. And those are the two fundamental things that, uh, that we need. CT scan offers some complementary information, I suppose. Uh, if there are malformations, maybe we're going to want to get a CT. It could provide some comfort in the surgical approach if the temporal bone is quite abnormal in terms of identifying and tracing the facial nerve, things like that. But I don't routinely get a CT. And on the MRI, is there a specific sequence that you're leaning on when you're evaluating these? So the T2, um, heavily weighted T2 sequences, and they, they come in different varieties depending on what devices you have, but those are the best. And if you can't get multiple images, fine cuts through the skull base, then a CT scan is maybe a, even a better way if, if you don't really have a great MRI scan to rule out malformations. And preceding uh, cochlear implantation, um, what is required in terms of a hearing aid trial? How is this required? How long does it last? And, and what's the purpose of the hearing aid trial? I think that's a great question. And we should probably ask one of the audiologists. I think sometimes the hearing aid trial is, is not all that important. Uh, when we're talking about very young children who have uh, bilateral severe to profound hearing loss, does it help with training to keep something on the ears? Well, I don't know. You're going to have to cross that barrier later anyway. So I, I think the mandated hearing aid trials are sometimes very extensive, you know, excessive in duration of time. It just simply delays implantation, which we know is not a good idea. So I don't think um, in a lot of cases it's actually all that beneficial. Certainly, if you're wondering about the level of hearing, if this is a child maybe with multiple comorbidities and you're not quite ready to proceed with an implantation, you may push a hearing aid uh, trial longer. But I, I think sometimes they're, they're overdone. And is this a requirement by insurance companies when you say mandated? Yeah, so it's a slippery slope to start talking about all the the uh, coverage requirements <laughs> because in the FDA requirements, it's a quagmire. Every device has different uh, criteria, and there's variations within that depending on the age of the child, et cetera. So it's listed as a, a you know part of the guidelines from the FDA and lots of 
under under lots of areas. You know, it's a required thing. But at the end of the day, is it is an insurance company coming to us and saying, well, the hearing aid trial was only a month and it needed to be three? You know, I don't think that that's happening. Uh, so for my next question, what are the official criteria for cochlear implantation candidacy in these children? FDA publishes um, guidelines, right? And I think it's important to understand where do these FDA guidelines come from? How are they developed? You'd think they would be developed. You would hope they would be developed with the idea that we should set guidelines that help us and parents make good decisions about who should have a cochlear implant. But that's not really where they come from. They come from um, studies that are done. Usually a company says, I have a new device. We're going to study it. We're going to pick a population to study it in. So we're going to pick an age range. We're going to pick hearing levels. And we're going to set boundaries around the uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria. And, of course, we're going to set those boundaries with the idea that this device is going to prove safe and efficacious because we don't want to do the study (laughs) if it's not going to be safe and efficacious. That would be a waste of our company's money. And so they're set up to win. And when that study gets executed and it shows safety and efficacy and all the boxes are checked, the FDA says, yes, your device is now approved for those indications. Well, that, that doesn't really get at what you and I want, which is the guidelines to, to be based in what's best for this child, what's best for this family. And so the guidelines, to me, the guidelines always lag, always lag behind what we want to do. There's a lot of gray in the guidelines, and a lot of centers will interpret guidelines differently, uh, make decisions differently. The insurance companies... Um, you know, we'll generally follow FDA guidelines, but not necessarily adhere to all the guidelines. Some of the guidelines are conflicting in a way. So I always try to approach the, the candidacy question by just thinking about this particular individual. Is a cochlear implant the right decision for this child at this time? And if we, the team, we all, the parents, all agree that this seems to be the right time, then are there any barriers that are going to be thrown up in our way from uh, insurance companies. And, you know, one of the big barriers that uh, we faced and still face to some degree is age of implantation. It wasn't until the year 2000 that the age of implantation dropped to 12 months. It, uh, you know, it's more recently now been dropped to nine months for based on one of the uh, uh, devices. But we routinely implant under age nine months because we know we know that earlier implantation results in better outcomes. Uh, so delaying implantation, waiting for an arbitrary age, does nothing except for hurt that child. And we'll touch uh, more on the timing in the treatment section of this uh, episode. But to finish out the workup uh, part of what we're talking about, I did want to ask you about the child with single-sided deafness. Uh, how do you approach your workup and treatment algorithm for a child with single-sided deafness? Well, this is a really fascinating area, and I'm still conflicted a bit about um, how to navigate this. 
I think we're becoming increasingly informed based on our experience with single-sided deafness in adults, but kids are different. And there's a, a big part of all of us that says, well, geez, two ears are better than one. We have a way to restore hearing with to an ear, so why wouldn't we do that as, when they're a child, when they may be able to take the best advantage of it in some ways because they're brain is ready and willing to adapt and develop. But on the other hand, they already have a normal hearing ear that's in many cases not threatened. So are you adding a burden by placing a cochlear implant? Are you adding less quality sound to an ear that already is a a good hearing ear? I think it's complicated. And I feel like now we're heading more to a a world of acceptance of devices than was historically uh, the case. And there's more and more willingness to push the boundaries of, you know, I think implantation and probably other treatments that make our quality of life better, make our lives better. You know, he- you just think of hearing aids in general are much better accepted now than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Still a long ways to go, but I feel like there's more of an acceptance among people, you know, parents with young children to consider an implant in the situation of single-sided deafness. We know there's a, there's a disability associated with single-sided deafness. How that affects any individual is, I think, really impacted by their, their overall situation. Um, socioeconomic status, you know, access to resources, et cetera. So I, I think it's a complicated thing, and it's so hard to sort out. It's going to take so long to understand. I'm very curious to see what's the long-term utilization rate of uh, implants. I don't think all kids are, are going to be the same. So you have a child who's had two ears, now they just had uh, high fever, they lost hearing in an ear. They had developed normal pathways um, to that auditory cortex. Probably putting an implant in is going to restore really good hearing. <clears throat> what about a, a prelingual child? I don't know if we really know what the pathways are or what, you know, what you restore. How about an atretic ear? You know, we, our, the CI results aren't as good. So is that the right kind of child implant? How about a malformation? I think it's easier if there's a, a risk of hearing loss in the, the good ear. Then to me, that's a very simple decision because we, we have a other threatened ear. So let's really try to maximize both. And now moving on to treatment, uh, we've started to talk about timing of implantation. But to dive into that a little bit more, how do you decide on the timing of implantation in these children? What's your uh, cutoff, uh, for example, in terms of age? And do you also have a size cutoff or other things that keep you from implanting earlier? In general, in my head, if all the stars align, um, it's age six months. Uh, so if the child's otherwise normal, developing normal, normally the parents are enthusiastic and on board, I think proceeding at six months is a reasonable target. We can be quite certain, I think, at that point, what the hearing is. If there are um, other comorbidities, other issues that family's dealing with, 
the patient's dealing with, delays in development, then maybe we push those things out further. So in my mind, I have several different time frames, six months, nine months, 12 months as uh, time points. I don't worry about the weight of the child. Um, you know, if you have a good pediatric anesthesia team, um, all of our children are way enough, big enough to get safely through surgery. And then we have the rare cases where we're worried about meningitis and ossification and will implant under age six months. And when you're considering implantation, how do you choose which side to implant? And do you usually implant bilaterally simultaneously or do you do it sequentially? How do you make those decisions? So the very young children, the uh, prelingual or children where I'm convinced they have very poor hearing of both ears, I'm a pretty big fan of bilateral simultaneous implantation. It can safely be done in one operation. It's become quite routine. Uh, so I'd rather do that under one anesthetic. If you have a slightly older child, a progressive loss, a very asymmetric loss, then it may make sense to put one implant in, let them start to work with that, um, see how that works with their other uh, better hearing ear, uh, maybe wait a little bit or you know move on to a sequential implant. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, but what are your biggest contraindications to surgery? Yeah, there's really only those two, I think. Um, <laughs> there better be a cochlea and a cochlear nerve, <laughs> somewhere to put the electrode. You know, there's other just emotional things to make sure that um, parents or families are, are ready and motivated uh, for it. Could you briefly tell us how cochlear implant surgery differs in a child in comparison to an adult? I know they're relatively similarly, but from an anatomic standpoint, are there other considerations when you're making your surgical approach? Yeah, so some things are, are quite similar. So the cochlea is you know, essentially adult size at birth, right? Um, fortunately for us in, in the cochlear implant world. And what, so once you get close to the cochlea, most things are about the same. But there are many aspects of surgery that aren't. Um, uh, if it's a very small child, you have to be more concerned about fluid status, blood loss. Um, we don't think of uh, cochlear implants as uh, patients undergoing cochlear implants as losing much blood. But if you're a you know six-month-old child, it's different than our normal uh, surgeries we're accustomed to. Um, infections, you know, more likely in younger uh, children. Surprisingly, there's not been a lot of trouble with wound issues, uh, but maybe slightly higher than than your standard adult uh, patient. You have to be aware of the anatomy. Uh, there's much higher risk of having malformations or abnormal temporal bones, so the course of the facial nerve, you know, you have to be aware of that. I think um, recovery is actually usually quite easy for the kids, often back to their normal self in a day or two. And how does your surgical approach differ in kids with syndromes like CHARGE or brachioto-renal syndrome or other labyrinthine malformations or cochlear malformations? Yeah, so those are the most challenging uh, cochlear implants uh, that we place uh, are in those kinds of situations where the, the cochlea is abnormal, the vestibular system is abnormal. Um, all of your anatomic landmarks can be uh, distorted. 
So it, it be, you just have to double down on knowing exactly where you are and finding structures. And that may mean being more aggressive in the surgery, may mean closing off the ear canal uh, so you can have better access. But there are times where you're putting a cochlear implant um, behind in behind the facial nerve instead of anterior to the facial nerve. So I think you have to be flexible in the approach and... Uh, you know, your imaging ahead of time should have alerted you to all of these uh, landmines and you should have planned for an appropriate approach. Uh, but you, ha you have to be hyper alert. Putting in implants in malformations is complicated. There's a lot of good papers out there that will show images of different types of malformations and understanding, uh, you know, how to pick an electrode, how to insert a particular electrode in a particular malformation is, I think, very important to getting a good result. Um, being able to get good intraoperative imaging or utilization of good imaging uh, during implantation so that you get the electrode in the, in the proper location is important. And then uh, finally, for more for this treatment uh, side of things, we talked about the effusion. Uh, what do you do if there is an active middle ear effusion or infection on the day of surgery? It's not too uncommon in the young children under age two to come across some inflamed mucosa, maybe some fluid, maybe even a mastoid that's filled with, you know, thickened mucosa. If there's not frank purulence, it's not real uh, vascular, bloody, like it's been infected, then I usually will put it in the implant at the same time. I do a more thorough mastoidectomy. Uh, we'll irrigate more. I'll put Cipridex or, you know, other, well, Cipridex into the ear. Would consider, if there's a history of recurrent otitis media that we're aware of, would consider putting in PE tubes at that time. Um, admittedly, I've been maybe more aggressive about putting implants in in those situations, and it's in part because I haven't had much trouble with infections in those situations, uh, despite how the ear looks. Mm -hmm. And I think you don't want to delay implantation unduly. Talking about infections, uh, we're starting to talk a little bit about risks. Uh, how do you counsel families or parents um, on the risks of the procedure, you know, infection, meningitis, device failure, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's sort of an interesting discussion in a way because you're talking about a procedure which has this upside of giving your child the ability to learn speech and language and live a completely different life than they might. And then you have to talk about, well, they could get an infection. But how does that, how do, and none of the risks really amount to enough to even consider, well, gee, we're not going to do that, it seems to me. The, fortunately, the overall risk rate is relatively low. Um, infections can occur. Usually that's going to require a device removal, let it heal up, go back and put a new device in. It's more surgery, uh, but the ultimate result is usually about the same or maybe the same. The risk of injuring the facial nerve is extremely low. We operate around the facial nerve every single day and as otologic surgeons. We monitor the nerve. It's extremely low, but it's real, just like it is in every ear surgery, every patient we talk to. Um, I think the risk of significant dizziness and balance problems is really low. Some studies and tests will show that there's reduced function after implantation, but it seems to be very uncommon that children 
have any real significant change in their function. And they don't look like they had a labyrinthectomy after surgery. And our adult experience is that uh, very seldom do we significantly injure the uh, balance uh, system. So I think that risk is very, very low. There's, um, you know, risk of meningitis, which is probably the one that most people know about. Well, that and the facial nerve. Um, and the meningitis controversy, I'll say, is complicated. The spike in meningitis that we saw in children with implantation occurred as a result of a particular device design in the early 2000s, which I think led to more intracochlear trauma and meningitis. Uh, that design, of course, is not utilized, and we saw the meningitis rates drop again. But because of that spike, there was new guidelines put out by the CDC for meningitis prophylaxis and vaccination schedules, which are frankly good, right? They just reduce your risk of meningitis, period. It's a little bit complicated in that kids get meningitis. Kids who have had meningitis are more likely to get meningitis again. Children with malformations are at higher risk of meningitis. And so is it related to the implant or is it related to their underlying otologic problems? The uh, you know more recent series will show either no cases of meningitis in large numbers of kids or very few. So I think that that risk is also extremely low. Another question that I have is you are implanting a device uh, that... I imagine has a life to it, and uh, we might not know exactly how long that life is. So how do you counsel parents on the need for a possible replacement of a device or updating of technology or something in the future? Is there more of a chance of extrusion because it's going to be in for 70 years versus our older patient population? Yeah, I it's sort of crazy to think that these devices can be in somebody for decades and decades. Um, uh, I talk about that as part of the preoperative evaluation, and um, it's a mechanical, you know, it's a man-made device, so it has a failure rate. Uh, it's one of the more common complications we see, frankly, uh, and may need to be replaced. Um, children at higher risk have issues related to head trauma uh, and may need su- revision surgery because of that. I do think at some point you're going to outgrow the computer chip that's in the device. Um, They're meant to last a long time. They're meant to be as adaptable as possible, but we know how the electronic world changes, and I suspect there'll be a time where older devices are going to be removed and replaced with newer devices because the the newer computer processing is it, it can't be run on the existing devices. The devices are small. They're really well tolerated from a scalp wound standpoint. Um, but I think w- w- undoubtedly we're going to learn some things over the 80 years or 90 years or 100 years that kids live with these. And do you recommend any change in behavior for these kids? You mentioned trauma. Do you recommend any anything different for kids who undergo implantation? I got to say I'm pretty hands-off with all that. And uh you know, life is life has risks. We have helmets. Let them play hockey. Let them play football. And now, uh, moving on to outcomes, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, how children do after undergoing cochlear implantation, especially those uh, who are prelingually deaf? 
So outcomes are, uh, again, interesting. Uh, we have many, many success stories, of course, and superstars. And, but we also have people on the other end of that spectrum who struggle to learn speech and language, uh, gain speech and language skills that allow them to enter school, mainstream schools. We have uh, children that are going to rely on sign language long term uh, because they, we can't deliver enough good quality sound. So the, the performance varies, and we know certain factors are highly related to success. And you know, one of those is parental involvement and access to care. So if you live in an environment where we don't have as robust of programming, um, you know, your audiologists, uh, you don't have access to speech language pathologists or speech therapists, then it's more difficult to, I think, maximize your performance. We know that socioeconomic status has a big impact and it, because there are lots of barriers uh, that people face. And if you can't get in for programming, you can't afford or have access to speech therapy, there's parts of these devices that break and need need to be replaced. If you're not coming in regularly and getting parts checked and replaced, then it's not performing the way it should be performing. So I think the the ultimate outcomes um, vary more than any of us would like. And, you know, we have to continue as as an industry to try to uh, break down all of those barriers that, you know, we know exist throughout healthcare. And I think health equity access are... uh, talked about much more now than in the past, but but it's still an enormous problem. And how do you feel like these kids do in comparison to uh, post-lingually deafened children who undergo cochlear implantation? Yeah, very different uh, situations. So we expect with our t- children that we implant pre-lingually, you know, in a, in a timely way with good support are going to enter mainstream schools and they're going to primarily communicate through oral speech, hearing and listening. Postlingually deafened, it's it's even easier, isn't it? <laughs> because you already have learned speech and language, and you've acquired all those skills, and we just have to replace some sound, and and you can basically carry on, uh, more like the adult population. And one thing I'd like to see change is the criteria for pediatric implantation is still really restrictive when it comes to looking at pure tone thresholds. And I do see people adhere to that. Well, it's not a severe to profound hearing loss. Yes, but this child's not progressing as we would expect in language development, and their pure tone thresholds are quite poor. And they're not going to get any better. They tend to just get worse, particularly in, in children. Uh, so I think we delay implantation in a lot of the kids who are, you know, they're using hearing aids as effectively as they can, but their hearing's not very good. And they should probably, they would do better with an implant. And so the, the criteria, it's just another example of where the criteria really limit access to the device. And then getting more towards the the timing of implantation, how much of a difference is there for prelingual deafened children uh, in terms of being implanted early versus later? And we could say nine months versus 12 months, but a better comparison might be nine or 12 months versus two years. Uh, what do you think is the difference there? 
So I hope we never really know because we don't really want to do that study. There isn't anybody I know who says to a child with moderate hearing loss, oh, I think it's okay. We can just wait to fit you with hearing aids until you're a year old or two years old. Well, why is that? We, we fit every, I mean, ideally, you fit the child with hearing aids ASAP, right? And everybody agrees with that. Maybe it doesn't get done all the time, but nobody, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Well, why is a cochlear implant any different? It's not, right? It, it requires surgery. It, it's a much more emotional decision, uh, but fundamentally, it's the same thing. The delay in implantation is, I think, enormously important to avoid uh, when you're talking about trying to maximize outcomes. I don't know how to quantify it on any individual, um, but I'm a firm believer in early implantation gives the best possible uh, outcome, and there's no advantage to delaying implantation that I can think of. Well, Dr. Driscoll, thanks so much. Uh, This has been an awesome discussion. Uh, I would next want to move on to the summary, but before I do, is there anything you want to add that we didn't talk about? You know, I think we covered a lot of uh, great things. I, one area that sometimes gets overlooked, I think, or is, or is a tricky area, are the children with progressive hearing loss. And they have some hearing, they're, they're getting by, they're working as hard as they can to, to get by in a hearing world, um, but their hearing is, is not that good or it's getting progressively worse. And I think those children, or or they, you don't really know that they have much hearing loss, and that at age one they pass their all their newborn screening, right? And then by age three they don't have any hearing, and so trying to identify the children that have those progressive losses promptly is important because they sometimes get they miss the bus for a while sometimes. Great. Well, in summary, um, prelingual children who are candidates for cochlear implantation most often present with a failed newborn hearing screen and subsequent failures on ABR. And the cause of hearing loss can be congenital or acquired. Congenital hearing loss, of course, most commonly due to the mutation of the GJB2 gene uh, and can also be associated with various syndromes. Acquired hearing loss can be caused by a number of things, including prematurity, meningitis, hyperbilirumenemia, ototoxic medications, and cochlear or vestibular malformations. Workup includes thorough audiologic evaluation, including a sedated ABR, and imaging can be either solely an MRI or an MRI with a CT scan. Current guidelines suggest that cochlear implantation can be offered quite early, about nine months, though this differs among centers, and as we talked, uh, it seems that the earlier the better, and a cutoff of about six months is quite reasonable. Overall, children do very well regarding hearing outcomes following cochlear implantation, and more importantly, being able to interact with the world and do things like attend school without issue. Um, And earlier implantation typically portends better results, though, of course, these children need to be considered on a case-by-case basis. Dr. Driscoll, anything else? No, I think you summarized it perfectly. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yep, thank you. Enjoyed it. I'll next move on to the question-asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds to give you an opportunity to think about the answer, and then give the answer. So our first question, what are the main causes of prelingual hearing loss? 
So when we think about etiology of hearing loss in kids, up to 50% are hereditary, a third of which are syndromic. The most common offender is a mutation in the GJB2 gene, which codes for connexin 26 protein. For those that are acquired, we talk about things like meningitis, hyperbilirubinemia, and other infections, to name a few. For our next question, what are the current criteria for cochlear implantation candidacy? So the current FDA criteria are that a child needs to be the age of at least nine months and have bilateral profound to severe sensory neural hearing loss. They should be suitable for auditory development education plan, and there shouldn't be any medical contraindication. Of course, when we discussed with Dr. Driscoll, children can be implanted earlier, and this is on a case-by-case basis and is dependent on the center. And for our final question, describe the outcomes in children who undergo cochlear implantation. Hearing outcomes are great with the majority of children developing near normal speech with evidence suggesting that children who are implanted earlier reach normal or near normal hearing sooner. This is also coupled with the fact that there are not increased risks to surgery in these children. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.